I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 26, 2022. Coming up, we'll discuss the Colorado River water crisis, the science, the politics, and potential solutions. Our two guests are Jennifer Gimbel. She's a senior water policy scholar at the Colorado Water Center in Fort Collins. And we have science journalist Tom Yulesman, who directs the Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A new study warns that as the potency of cannabis has increased over the years, so have rates of people being treated for cannabis addiction. Researchers at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom reviewed 20 studies involving over 100,000 people to reach this conclusion. For their investigation, the researchers focused on the key psychoactive chemical in cannabis, tetrahydrocannabal, also known as THC. They know that the concentration of THC in modern cannabis products is much higher than it was decades ago. Their analysis suggests that people who use higher potency cannabis are more likely to suffer from cannabis addiction, and they're more likely to get diagnosed with psychotic disorders, such as schizophrenia. The authors suggest that using lower potency cannabis is likely to result in less of these serious outcomes. They add that their findings might help explain why more people are getting treated for cannabis-related problems Data from the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction indicates that in the last decade, the number of people getting treatment for cannabis addiction has increased nearly 80%. Cannabis is illegal in the United Kingdom, making potency harder for users to evaluate. The authors suggest that cannabis regulation might help reduce the harm they see from products with high THC potency. For instance, more regulation might make labeling about potency more clear and put a limit on the potency of cannabis products. And more investment in cannabis education and treatment programs might help people using cannabis weigh more of the pros and cons of their choices. The study about cannabis potency and mental illness was published yesterday in the journal Lancet Psychiatry. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. We know that as we age, we all lose hair, muscle tone, and knee cartilage, among other things. But here's a new twist on that old story. As men get older, they also start to lose Y chromosomes. Scientists have linked this loss to a long list of diseases and a higher risk of death, but the evidence has been circumstantial. When the Y chromosome is removed from bone marrow in male mice, the animals die earlier than their Y-carrying counterparts, probably because their hearts became stiffer. The Y chromosome is small, only 71 genes, about 10%, the number on the X chromosome. That may be why the Y sometimes doesn't get passed on when a cell divides. By analyzing blood, it's been found that the Y is missing from some white blood cells in about half of 70-year-olds and close to 60% of 93-year-olds. Cells can survive and reproduce without a Y, but men lacking the chromosome in some of their cells are more likely to suffer heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, and other aging-related ailments. To test whether removing the Y chromosome harms health, a group of researchers at the University of Virginia performed bone marrow transplants on male mice. They deleted the Y from bone marrow cells and then inserted those altered cells into young male mice whose bone marrow had been removed. The treated mice had the Y chromosome in about half their white blood cells. That's about the same percentage as in humans with Y chromosome loss. For nearly two years, the researchers followed treated and sham-operated control mice. Those without Ys were about 50% more likely to die during this time. 
Mice that lost their wise had weaker hearts. Their hearts' contractile strength declined by 20%. In addition, the buildup of tough connective tissue, a process called fibrosis, which stiffens the heart and impairs its ability to pump blood, increased in the hearts of mice missing the Y. The fibrosis was probably due to blood cells called macrophages. These originate in the bone marrow. These guys crawl around the body, and those without Ys, when they entered the heart, stimulated the growth of connective tissue. Something similar may be going on in humans. By analyzing a database of more than 50,000 men in the UK, the researchers found that men who had lost the Y from at least 40% of their white blood cells were 30% more likely to die from circulatory system diseases, including heart failure, than unaffected men. Although these sound like grim results, there's hope for the future. Mice that were treated with an antibody that countered fibrosis had normal lifespans. This study was published last week in the journal Science. Thanks to Beth Bennett for that report. listening to the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. The Colorado River is the lifeblood for about 40 million inhabitants, and it's in dire straits. The river's two massive reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, are at historically low levels, thanks to climate change and other factors. Maybe you've seen the, dark, the stark images of the high-water mark so-called bathtub rings around the shores of the reservoirs, or of boats that had sunk long ago and now protrude from the muddy shores, or, more gruesomely and recently, of two bodies that were found a few months ago in Lake Mead after they were exposed by plunging water levels. The water supply crisis is affecting Colorado and six other states and many tribes that all rely on the Colorado River for water and electricity. Last month, the problem reached a peak when the federal government ordered the seven states to jointly come up with a plan to drastically cut their consumption from the Colorado River, and they have just until mid-August to deliver. If they fail to do this, they'll be faced with mandatory cuts. Our two guests today will shed some light on the underlying causes of the water crisis, the current status of the deliberations among states and tribes, as well as potential solutions. Jennifer Gimbel is water policy scholar at the Colorado Water Center, which is located at Colorado State University. She was formerly an undersecretary of the Department of Interior, as well as the executive director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. Ms. Gimbel joins us via phone from Fort Collins. Jennifer, welcome and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Susan, for having me. I'm uh, glad to be here. And our second guest is Tom Mulesman. He's a science journalist who's covered climate for many years, and he's a columnist for Discover Magazine. And he directs the Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder. In fact, Tom has contributed in the past to the How on Earth show. He joins us now in the studio. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jennifer Gimbel, I want to start with you. If you could lay out for listeners, in a nutshell, what is this mandate from the federal government the Bureau of Reclamation, particularly, and why it's coming now? Well, the why is easy, and I think that you addressed that in your beginning comments, and that is that the flows are seriously reduced. You mentioned it because of climate change, but the other is also overuse of the river. And uh, so that's the why. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
the, the mandate that the Bureau of Reclamation Commissioner issued shows that they are concerned about their facilities and how they function and making sure that the river is sustainable. And for context, if you could lay out, like, who are the so-called stakeholders, the states, not all the tribes, but the fact that tribes are definitely at the table. So who's all at the table and how they have historically come together to manage usage of water for the Colorado River? Sure. So each governor, the governor of each of the seven basin states, has appointed a representative to uh, the negotiations and the discussions that go on with respect to the river. We also have, of course, the United States, and we have uh, Mexico involved with uh, some of those discussions. And this goes back to the Colorado Compact, right? If you could bring that up in a nutshell as well. Okay, so we have the nations. We have tribes um, who uh, have unused reserved water rights in the river, Some have been adjudicated, some not. You have the major players, the major water users, all the municipalities that rely on the river. Then you have the agricultural community represented, as well as the environmental and recreational folks. So each state works within their state and those constituencies, and then they come to the table with the other states, the United States, uh, to iron out what we can can be done. Boy, so if you could be a fly on the wall, what would you be seeing? This sounds chaotic, or is it not so? It's not so, and, and thank you for that question, because the thing about the Colorado River and the people who have been working on the river, uh, the policy leaders, are um, working very well together, and they have for the last 20 years. This drought has forced the states in the United States and Mexico, all to come in and give up a little bit to keep uh, the sustainability of the river. And, and they've done very well. They've, they've mounted these challenges. So um, it's not, those discussions are not always easy, <laughs> but they usually get to where they need to get. And speaking of drought, I want to turn to you, Tom Yulsman. You've covered climate change for many years and its impacts. And you were recently on a reporting trip, in fact, to Lake Mead and Lake Powell and the surroundings before getting into kind of the context of climate change. Bring us there. What did you see that really surprised you or brought you to a different level of understanding? Well, many of us who, you know, followed this have heard about the bathtub ring and we've uh, also, um, uh, you know, heard about the the bodies in the in the boats and all of that. It's one thing to read about those things. It's another to see this nearly two hundred foot high bathtub ring swath of white left over by minerals left behind as the the lake has dropped. And I tried to wrap my head around, like you know, maybe some comparisons for people to appreciate it. It's not quite, but it's almost the distance from the roadbed of the Golden Gate Bridge over the ocean. That's a that's about Ooh. 245 feet down. As and one who's you, from that area and has walked and cycled across that bridge many times. When you wow, look down, stark. right? Mm-hmm. When you look down, it's way down. And that, it hasn't gone down that much. The lake hasn't gone down that much, but it's getting there. And so. roughly in what period? And are you talking from historic highs or from kind of the historic average? Yeah, good question. So the the, the high 
level mark was reached in 1983, I believe, um, when the um, Lake Mead was filled to capacity. And in fact, there was so much water that they had to release it over, um, you know, through this mechanism that they can release the water. So since then, it's been dropping and more recently dropping a lot. So in a nutshell, like what are the key underlying causes of this water crisis? I know Jennifer Gimbel alluded to some of them, but also how low are the levels now versus years ago? And what does the whole region look like historically and currently? Yeah, so let's talk about the, the, the context and causes. Uh, research published in February found that the years 2000 through 2021 constituted the driest 22-year period in this Colorado River Basin area, actually the southwestern United States, in at least 1,200 years. Wow. And so, you know, scientists call this a, a mega drought, and that's occurred in the past um, before we began influencing the climate. So nature is perfectly capable of cooking up these things on her own, but thanks to us, it's much worse than it would have been. Uh, and the researchers calculate that about 40% of what we're in now is accounted for by human-caused climate change, and primarily, actually, not all, but a fair amount of it due to warming, and we can talk about that if there's time. Um, if it hadn't been for us, if it hadn't been for human-caused climate change, the past two decades wouldn't have even qualified as a single extended drought event at all. And talk some about like this relationship between snowfall, snowpack, evaporation, because it looks like this was a fairly normal or maybe 80% of normal year, and yet that doesn't paint a rosy picture necessarily, right? Right. That's a really good question. So this spring, snowpack in the headwaters region of the Colorado River peaked at about 90%. Um, in some areas of the basin, it was at 105% of normal. Others, it was a bit lower, but nonetheless, you know, it, it, it wasn't terrible, and particularly in the headwaters, it wasn't terrible. Yet the forecast for the flow of water into mm. Lake Powell from April through July, um, and Lake Powell is the second largest reservoir in the United States and a key one on the Colorado, that forecast is just for 55% of average. So we had mm. quite, quite not maybe normal snowpack, but not terrible, yet just 55% of average. Um, and there are uh, a number of reasons for it, but one thing to keep in mind that um, it has to do with warmth. It has to do with human-caused warmth, right? So we have warmer temperatures. Snow melts off earlier in the spring. When, when the ground is exposed sooner, you get more evaporation. You're also starting um, the, the, the spring season with dry soil. So as soon as that soil melts, as soon as the um, snow melts, soils and vegetation just suck it up. So the bottom line is there's just less that runs off into the streams mm -hmm. and rivers to replenish the, the reservoirs. And on that note, I would imagine all the wildfires that have already happened in the West and are projected to occur yet more are only further exposing the soil and parching the soil and creating or exacerbating the evaporation. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you might be aware that um, on days where we get these like really heavy thunderstorms, if you look at the National Weather Forecast, uh, you know, um, alerts, they uh, alert for flash flood um, warnings. And so you get a lot of water that may rush off into streams, but um, that's just not the, the thing that really helps replenish uh, a reservoir like, um, uh, you know, Lake Powell or Lake Mead. It's 
just that regular runoff of snow melt that will happen gradually over a period of time in the spring. But it's melting off sooner. Warmer temperatures are causing more evaporation. Soils and plants, which are stressed, are sucking up more of that water. There's just less of that snow that winds up in rivers and streams to replenish the reservoirs. Mm-hmm. A downward spiral. And Jennifer Gimble, I want to turn back to you to get to give us some context, a little more uh, description of not just the stakeholders at large, but there's the upper basin and the lower basin, Colorado being part of the upper basin. Sort of how much, without getting too granular, but how much does each use and what what's going on within the upper basin and the lower basin states? Sure. Well, first of all, we need to mention the Colorado River Compact. This is the 100th year anniversary of the signing of that compact. Right. And that divided the basins, the upper basin and the lower basin, with each basin supposedly guaranteed 7.5 million acre-feet a year. And um, the upper basin has what's called a non-depletion obligation to assure that there's 75 million acre-feet over 10 years it gets to the lower basin. And that's that. the reservoirs have have provided for that so that there's no compact violations. However, when you look at the uses in the basin, the lower basin has, for the last five years, uh, and this is with the drought and the drought contingency plans, has used almost uh, 10 million acre feet a year. The upper basin has used on an average about 4.5 million acre feet a year. Hmm. And last year we used 3.5 acre feet or and million acre feet. Interesting. We, you mean upper basin? You know, due to conservation, but also to the, the challenged hydrology that uh, Tom was talking about. And back up a bit further. So, which are the states in the upper and the lower? Okay, the upper basins? basin includes Colorado. Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming. And, and, and just lay out the lower basin states and Mexico. And the lower basin is Arizona, California, and Nevada, although Nevada gets just a tiny, tiny piece of that, about 350,000 uh, acre feet a year. And so with that, um, you have uh, all the uses. You have the municipal uses. Many of the municipal uses are out of the basin, actually, out of the Colorado River Basin. You're talking the Denver's, the mm-hmm. Angeles, San Diego, Salt Lake City. The um, agriculture, of course, is the the most use of the water. They use about 80% of the water. And uh, so they're very keen on these discussions and, and what's happening with those conversations. Yeah, so... <laughs> so complex. So I'm going to take a little break. You're listening to KGNU in Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, Nederland, and anywhere on KGNU.org. We're discussing the problems and potential solutions to the water supply crisis facing the Colorado River and the seven states and some 30 tribes that all rely on its water for water and electricity. Our guests are Jennifer Gimble, Senior Water Policy Scholar at the Colorado Water Center, housed at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and we have Tom Yulesman, a science journalist who writes a blog for called Imagio for Discover Magazine, and he directs the Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder. So, Jennifer, lay out a bit what the upper basin states have just, you know, in the last week, I think it was, proposed. It looks that's, kind of slim, but it's something, right? 
Right. They're, they they call it, I think, a five-point plan. But what they propose is uh, going through the drought reservoir operations. This is what was used to release water out of Flaming Gorge and Blue Mesa down to Lake Powell to help uh, keep up the levels in Lake Powell. They propose bringing back a federal uh, conservation program uh, that uh, showed that we can conserve water um, in, in different methods uh, for ag- agriculture, and uh, but we need money. We need money to do that. We can do it, but we have to get it. Make sure it gets to the system. They also talked about fucking up the conservation being done, you know, for, by municipalities. And uh, it, 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 what I saw in that letter was a very strong commitment by the upper basin states that we take this seriously. We are looking at demand management programs, at system conservation programs, and we have the reservoir operations to, to back us up on that. Tom Yulesman, I see you leaning in. What, yeah. What's your take on this? So one, one take on the proposal that I read from someone who has covered water and is now kind of a water expert, a, a guy named John Fleck, his take on it is that it basically offers no new efforts to curtail water use. Uh, and the upper basin states believe that for the most part, um, you know, the proposal shows that they believe for the most part it's a problem for the lower basin states to solve. And, you know, we'll do something, but not all that much. Thoughts about that? Well, yeah, Tom, thanks. I, I appreciate uh, that. I know John very well. Um, there are, there, there are um, the way the system is operated, the lower basin has more control of the water that they use as well as the federal government. And why is that? Water goes into a reservoir above those uses. Here in the upper basin, we're more controlled by the hydrology that's given us. And so we don't have the same kind of control that the lower basin has. And that's how I'd respond to John on that. Do you mean that the lower basin states have more control because of the advantage of hydrology, or they have actually more political managerial control? And why, if that's so? They probably have more political uh-huh. control, but uh, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, because not because of the hydrology, because of Lake Powell and Lake Mead. I see. Like, like Powell and Lake Mead are both there as bank accounts, essentially. Powell to make sure the upper basin states meet their compact obligations. Mead to deliver the water to the lower basin through the Secretary of Interior. And we have hydrology, meaning snowpack, which we don't have much control over at all. Um, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay, so you have at least a two-page <laughs> broad brush, but some initial proposal from the upper basin states. What's next? Is it that the lower basin states and tribes are expected to or will come up with their own proposal? And if not, what happens come mid-August? Now, the lower basin states are meeting um, intensely to figure out a plan. They I know that they're, they're working on things. I don't know what those things are, but in August, we have what's called the 24-month study that comes out that gives us a projection of what's going to happen over the next 24 months. That is, that is where Commissioner Tootin said, we need to know if you've got a plan by that time. The Fed, federal government then says they will, they will propose a plan. And if the federal government and the states do not agree, what happens? Well, Jennifer Gimbel, sorry. That controls 
the big reservoirs on the river, both in the upper basin and the lower basin. Uh-huh. And Tom Yulesman? So, yeah, I mean, they, they, have the, they have the power of the spigot, so to speak. So ultimately, they can decide what to do if, if, this, if the basin states don't get their act together. Interesting. And, and Jennifer Gimbel, tell us a bit about the role of the tribes. Well, the, the tribes have uh, a, a lot of what's called reserved water rights, that, that this is water guaranteed to them through the federal government when they were put on reservations to have a, a homeland and to be able to uh, survive and, and uh, uh, you know, be able to live on that. Many of those rights have not been adjudicated, but they exist. Many have been adjudicated, but they've not been used. And so tribes are an important piece of this conversation because a lot of this water is theirs. Well, thank you. I think we all will have a part two more on the solutions, what cities and industry and ag are or should be doing. But for now, we'll have to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Jennifer Gimble. Thank you. And Tom Mielsman, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Jennifer Gimble, Senior Water Policy Scholar at the Colorado Water Center in Fort Collins, and Tom Mielsman, Science Journalist and Director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder. And to note, we'll post relevant resources on our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Shannon Young. Additional headline contributions from Beth Bennett and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Handel's Water Music. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.